0: Would you open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 4? 2 Corinthians 4. I mentioned this at the outset of the service, but I I really have felt God's leading this week to lay aside the next message in Genesis, which would have been Jacob. And maybe we'll come back to that after Palm Sunday and Good Friday and our resurrection celebration on April 9th. But I I think we need to spend time this morning looking into God's word at what he says about our present suffering. You know, there's always a measure of suffering in a church family. How could there not be? We're human beings, and humanity suffers in many different ways. But it does seem to a number of us that there's a greater weight at this moment that gospel hope is carrying than what might be normal. Even as I look around this morning and just rehearse what little I know about the individual stories and in some of your families and households, um, I, I feel that weight, and many of you feel it. I was encouraged to hear from two different community group leaders how this past week as they met, they, they spent extended times in prayer or extended times in just sharing. One of the group leaders even just basically said to the group, all right, let's put it on the table. And another member in that group even said, with gratitude, thanks for opening Pandora's box. Some of you, by nature, share freely, and, and that's good. God created, that, created you in that way. Others of you, by nature, hold it in. And while we understand and respect that, I would actually caution you to be careful about how much you just like shove down, because that suffering is real. And God's intention in the context of a church is that no one carries it alone. At the end of the service, we're actually going to invite you to come forward for prayer. And I'll say more about this, but we've we've actually got a prayer team ready to go, because some of you came here today just like, so weighed down, and maybe you weren't thinking along the lines that you would love for somebody to pray with you, but you're going to have that opportunity at the end, and that opportunity is always present, so I hope you'll be thinking about that and preparing for it. It's a privilege to pray for one another. It's something that we can do, so while there's always a measure of suffering in a church, there are seasons where it seems a little more pronounced, a little weightier, And last week when Matt asked for a show of hands of how many of you are dealing with something that would fall into this category, you know, Matt said, hands went up all over the room. And I suspect that even some of you who didn't raise your hand could have because you're carrying a heavy weight on your heart or on your soul at this moment. Suffering is common to the church. It's common to the world, though. And, and let's not lose sight of the fact that suffering is common to the religious and the non-religious alike. Uh, there's no group that gets an exemption from this. The difference for the followers of Jesus, though, is that we don't get an immunity card you know, that frees us from suffering. We suffer uh, for a different purpose, and I would even say to a different end than certainly a non-religious person or even those who are religious but don't follow Jesus Christ. You say, why would you say that, Danny? Well, I want you to look at 2 Corinthians 4. We're actually going to read the whole chapter. It, I timed it out this morning. It's 2 minutes and 45 seconds. How about that? Or thereabouts. So it's not a long chapter, and it's densely packed, and we're not going to have time to cover all 18 verses of this, but I want you to hear it uh, in, a, in a fuller expression. We're actually going to begin to focus on verse 7 And following, but we'll back up to verse 1. You follow along as I read 2 Corinthians 4. The Apostle Paul writes, "...therefore having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God." For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, by your word, give us light that we may see. Give us strength that we may believe. And give us grace that we may persevere. We ask this for the glory of your name, for the joy of your Son, for the honor of the Spirit, and for the good of of the church, in Jesus' name, amen. Now Go back to verse seven with me, please. There's a little point of identity that God gives us here at the very outset. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Um, he, he is actually speaking, of, the treasure has reference to what he just said in the previous verses, the knowledge of the glory of God as, as it's revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. You could even say, you know, to make it really simple, the treasure is Christ, It's all that he is in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his glorious authority uh, after the ascension where he's been exalted to the right hand of God. There's a treasure that's been deposited, if you will, in ordinary people. Jars of clay is not a very flattering description in one sense, is it? I, I... and it just shows even my own clayness, if you will. I actually had a little four-inch terracotta pot sitting on the corner of my desk that I was going to pull out at this particular moment. The closest thing I could find here in the church building this morning was was this really great Gospel Hope mug. Um, and you who are guests, uh, that will be your gift if you go to that table in the lobby. The little four-inch terracotta pot, though, is even less valuable than that coffee mug if you were to just put a price on it. And, And I want you to know, though, that the Lord is not talking about our value so much as he is reminding, using that little image to remind us of how fragile it is. And if you have done much potting with terracotta pots, you know it doesn't take a lot to crack them, to chip them, to just shatter them. But there's something that's been deposited in that fragile jar of clay that Paul is talking about here. And before we spend time there, I want you to just think for a moment. You're seated in a room full of clay jars. Don't make the mistake of, of thinking when you come into an assembly like this, like, man, these people have their lives together in every way. They're, they're, they're just such great people and perfect lives. And I mean, they are great people. I love gospel hope, but don't make the mistake of thinking that somehow you're the only one who is cracked or chipped or flawed or imperfect. You're in a room full of clay jars. Humanity really could be described as jars of clay. By nature, we are vulnerable. We're vulnerable and weak, vulnerable to... Disease and discouragement We're vulnerable to all kinds of threats financially, economically, emotionally, relationally. Humanity is made of clay. But there's something here that Paul is drawing our attention to, that there's a treasure that's been deposited in the jars of clay. We know that ultimately is Christ and what he has done. But notice what he says next: that we have this treasure in jars of clay to show something. And the first part of that is to show that the surpassing power in our lives belongs to God and not to us. Now, that's a very different perspective because most of humanity is seeking to demonstrate its own power, to demonstrate its own worth, its value. And so you know people like this, that every time you're around them, they tell you their latest set of accomplishments or their latest set of goals that they are seeking to achieve. And there are all kinds of self-help books on the shelves that you could check out from the local library, or that you could purchase online or even at Barnes & Noble. Why? Because we pride ourselves in thinking that we are powerful people, but not so the followers of Christ. Divine power has been deposited in fragile vessels like us for the purpose that God would show the surpassing power that belongs to him. And he uses a term here that if you were to, if, if you were to literally transliterate it, uh, from the Greek into the English, you'd get the word hyperbole. Now, that's come to mean an exaggeration. You know, and we use hyperbole all the time. And we use it like this I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. Probably not. But it's okay. We know what we mean, and we don't take one another literally. Well, Paul's not using hyperbole to make an exaggeration like that. He's actually using a term to say that this power of God, this divine power that really does reside in his people, just it abounds beyond what could be expressed. It's abundant. Now, how does God show this surpassing power? Look at verse 8. There are four terms that Paul pushes to the forefront of this discussion, and they stand in contrast to four other terms. So as we work through this passage, pay attention. But the first thing he notes is that we are afflicted and this is a word that means we are pressed pressed together There's compression that's happening on the soul or pressure that is happening within the heart. This dear congregation is pressed in just about every way imaginable at the moment. And just even in the last several weeks, there have been the, the deaths of loved ones. There are multiple families that are dealing with disease and sickness. There are situations of disability. There have been pregnancy complications and miscarriages, unexpected job losses, ongoing job searches that have gone way too long. Job transitions that were unexpected. There have been financial pressures that have come with those particular things. There are there are always marriage challenges, aren't there? Parenting challenges. There is anxiety and discouragement and despair and sleeplessness. And by the way, those last four that I just mentioned, be encouraged. Paul actually names all four of those in two other places in Second Corinthians. These are the pressures? The affliction that just presses your heart, your mind, your soul. But look at what he says, but we've not been crushed. That's where the pressure actually becomes so great that you are shattered and left in a place of true hopelessness. So Paul is saying we're under pressure, but we haven't lost hope. Then he says we're perplexed. The second category here has to do with perplexities. That means to be filled with confusion because we don't understand what's going on. So there's doubt that creeps in. Sometimes there's hesitation. Have you ever, have you ever been in a place where you have decision paralysis? You know you got to do something, but you don't know what to do, and you're, you're fearful that the consequences of this decision would result in difficulty. But if you go that way, you see some other difficulty, and so you feel paralyzed in that moment because of the confusion. That's what Paul's talking about. He says we're perplexed. But we're not driven to despair. That, in a sense, that kind of despair that he's talking about is where you fall apart and you'll never be remedied. Then the third category that he speaks of are persecutions. That is the systematic harassment and attack due to our beliefs. And that is beginning to actually appear. Some of you probably saw the, read the articles or at least the headlines that there have been some hockey players recently who took a, a position that they would not wear a particular jersey that condones lifestyles that the Lord Jesus himself has said, it's sin, it will lead to the destruction of your soul. And they stood publicly for that. And now they're called haters, fear mongers. Isn't it interesting That a choice not to wear a certain jersey is looked at as an attack. Paul faced far more than that. This is a man who could point to scars physically and say, can I tell you about the time I was stoned because publicly I said, Jesus Christ is Lord and he calls everyone here to repent and believe. We haven't even gone that far yet. Will it come? Maybe, probably, I don't know if we live long enough. There are other subtle pressures. Some of you face it in the workplace. You're harassed. Some of you face it at school. You know, you're even wrestling with a point, you you know, you you feel like you may have made a mistake to carry a, a Bible to school and a stack of books or to, you know, have your phone out and be reading the Word of God during lunch and somebody else noticed and now they're just like, they just, they won't let up. They're harassing you. Well, that's a form of persecution because of your faith in Jesus Christ. But look at what Paul says, but we've not been forsaken. That is, we have, God hasn't left us behind. And then he says, we've been struck down. There's a, there's a certain kind of violence in this term. It means to be thrown down, to be hurt badly by severe blows. And this could be both of a physical nature or a spiritual or emotional nature. And some of you have taken severe blows. And Paul doesn't say necessarily that it's tied to you know proclaiming the gospel or uh sharing christ with others he's just talking about being struck down taking a beating if you will some of you have been struck down and you're on your back looking up going god what what happened what is this but paul says we've not been destroyed and again this has to do with irreparable damage Consider Paul's life in history that, I mean, he came to the brink of death multiple times, stoned, shipwrecked, left for dead. I mean, he has quite an impressive resume. So it's, it, it's not a, an easy thing for him necessarily to, to acknowledge, not destroyed. As I was thinking those, through those four particular terms where Paul says, not this, not this, not this, not this, I, I began to think, and I'll, I'll just put this out here for you meditation particularly with a view of good friday as it approaches in two weeks you know it's actually jesus who was crushed crushed for our iniquities jesus was driven to despair as he was in reality forsaken by god his father on the cross he cried my god my god why have you forsaken me And he was destroyed under the weight of God's wrath as the sacrifice for our sin when he died on the cross. He did all of that so people like you and me would have the confident assurance that it will never happen to us. What a Savior. But look at verse 10. Paul goes on, and after he has set up these four categories, if you will, or these four descriptions of what he and The Corinthians were suffering what we are suffering at this particular moment. He says, you know, we're always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Now, that term carry is interesting, and I stumbled into something this week. That makes it sound too random. Uh, God led me to something. How about that? Um, That that was really a blessing. And One of the authors who had studied this more in depth in his commentary wrote that he believes that Paul is using the imagery of Greco-Roman epiphany processions. You say, "What is a Greco-Roman Epiphany procession?" Well, think of something like Mardi Gras. It's a big parade. Now, these though these processions had had a a more specific design than just to have a big celebration, and and they would have been you know vile and profane, and some of them very immoral, like Mardi Gras. Uh, That's not a good thing. By the way, I'm I'm just saying there were cultural things back then, uh, parades that would be similar. And and here's the intention of a Greco-Roman epiphany parade. The design was to attract future uh, followers of a particular god or goddess that was at the center of their group. And so they would parade through the streets all kinds of icons and images that people would see those objects and say, Ooh, I want to be a part of that group. So the parade was designed in a sense as a recruiting tool. This author says that the danger displays is that people will be so distracted by all the tinsel and glitter of the vessel that they will ignore what the vessel contains. And in contrast to that kind of profane parade, Paul is making the point here that we as jars of clay with this treasure deposited in us are always carrying in our bodies the death of Jesus. And here's a second thought for you. The term he uses for death, he doesn't typically use this Greek term when he's talking about death. It's a term that you would know well, even in the medical realm, necrosis. And that has a very different perspective than just like a moment of death. Now, necrosis has to do with a localized death of living tissue. Gangrene would be an example of that. It's not a pleasant thought. But the necrosis that Paul is speaking of here refers to a process or a state of dying. So think about this. We, by faith, read the Gospels and we see Jesus go through a process of dying. It is specific in the week, uh, the Passion Week as we call it, specific to the, the beatings and scourgings that led up to the cross as he poured out his life and shed his blood for our salvation. There was a process underway. Well, Paul actually says for the people of God, there's, there's a, a similar kind of process that's underway. But that brings us to a grand purpose. Look again at verse 10 and pay attention to the little words like so that. This process of dying that is common to all of us For the believer has a purpose, and here it is, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested or revealed in our bodies. Remember, Jesus is the treasure that's been deposited in your little jar of clay. And as you and I go through this process, even of dying, the life of Jesus is revealed. That's what manifested means, to become clearly revealed to the senses, to the mind, even to the judgment those who are looking on. Now look at verse 11. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that, he reinforces it, says it again, the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Do you see how he's beginning to draw those strong contrasting terms of life and death, a a process of dying, and yet there's this life of Christ that is being manifested. Beloved, God is revealing something eternally important through our weakness and through our suffering. He's revealing to us the value of Christ. He's also revealing it to other people. Another author writes that the hardships that Paul lists in his catalog have, as it were, caused cracks in him as an earthen vessel, but the vessel itself remains intact. And I love this. Listen to this next line. The vessel is held together by the power of divine adhesive, and the light that shines through these cracks is none other than the light of the life of Jesus. That's what makes your suffering as a follower of Jesus different from the secularist, or the atheist, or the agnostic, or even the Hindu, or the Buddhist, or we could name a a variety of religious people in the world. The presence of Christ is not dwelling in them. The light of Christ is not emerging through those cracks of their suffering. But look at the result. Verse 12, so death is at work in us, but life in you. Wait a second, Paul, what, what do you mean death is at work in us, and I think he's referring to himself and some of the other apostles or church leaders. But how does that result in life for others? Well, we'll come to that. Let me pause to encourage you to think about how God uses our suffering. There's a great little book titled Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. Now, it's written by a believer. But taking some of those objections that non Christians often raise against us, yeah, if your God is sovereign and loving, why is there evil in the world? Well, that's a really hard one. I'll admit that. But the author, Rebecca McLaughlin, tells, ties together two little vignettes from people she knows. And I, I want you to listen to how this helps us understand some of what God is doing. She wrote, a friend who lost his first child to miscarriage shared with me that for a long time, he and his wife could only pray Psalm 88, which ends with darkness. If you haven't read Psalm 88 recently, read it again. It's not a happy psalm. It's not even like Psalm 116, where we're very honest with the suffering we have, but we still have hope, because God is all these marvelous things. No, Psalm 88, I mean, it, you know, it, I, I can't remember off the top of my head who wrote it, but it could have been authored by Debbie Downer, do you, know, do you know Debbie Downers? McLaughlin goes on to write, the panacea platitude, everything happens for a reason, is often cold comfort to an anguished heart. Have you heard things like that recently where you know the person meant well, but boy, it actually added to your pain. You know, when you're crushed, feel like you're crushed, underweight, and somebody says, well, God has something good for you in this, you just want to say, shut up. But another friend, she goes on to write, but another friend whose teenage son was brain damaged in a sport accident shared his perspective on suffering like this. People, people often think that the reality of suffering is an embarrassment to the Christian faith, but I think suffering is the greatest apologetic for Christianity there is. I think that's in part what Paul is saying here. Your suffering is not meaningless. It didn't happen to you just because you were in the wrong place at the wrong time or you were unlucky. But the God you serve has incomprehensible purposes at work, but he's, at, he's telling us at least some of them right here. And we, first of all, accept the fact that we're clay, clay. And the weakness of our lives and then the suffering, the pressure that, that creates even some of those cracks becomes a powerful platform on which we proclaim Christ. You know, I'm also aware that when you're suffering, you're not typically aware that God is displaying his surpassing power. But he is. Because he is intent on revealing the eternal treasure that he's placed in you, and that is Christ. Well, that does lead us to the second point. We're not only displaying the treasure that is Christ, we are actually proclaiming, using these moments of suffering as an opportunity to proclaim our hope ultimately in the resurrection of Christ. Look at verse 13. Paul writes, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. Now, pause right there. He's actually quoting Psalm 116 verse 10 where David, who we believe at Psalm 116 says, I believed even as I spoke, I'm suffering. And, And that's not a contradiction and that's not whistling in the dark. No, it's in that very moment where the value of our faith emerges and we recognize it. And Paul now says, since we have the same spirit of faith that the psalmist did, David, if he wrote it, we also believe and so we speak. You see, you see what he's saying? Yes, we're suffering, but because we have the same faith that David had a thousand years ago at Paul's day, and here we are two thousand years beyond Paul, we can we can kind of you know hitch our wagon to this train, so to speak, and go, Yep, same faith that David had, same faith that Paul had. We suffer, share so many things in common. If you read through Psalm 116, he's describing, the snares of death have encompassed me, the pangs of the grave laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. I was brought low. I'm greatly afflicted. I was alarmed. But we too can say when we experience those things because of our belief, that's the very moment to speak. And what do we speak? Well, the point is not just to say, I'm suffering, life is terrible, you know, poor me, poor me. No, we go beyond that. Look at what Paul directs us to. We're speaking of our hope and faith in the resurrection that the Lord Himself experienced and His promise to all who believe in Him. Verse 14, that knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into His presence. You see, believers use their suffering as a platform to speak. And, and God have mercy on us if all we ever talk about is how hard our life is. We can be honest about those things, but at the same time, we have to, we have to move through that and, and make sure that we are not, as Paul said earlier uh, in the chapter, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ. And you know, when you're suffering, it, it is some comfort. There is some consolation when you say, my life is terrible, I'm really hurting, and someone goes, oh, let me give you a hug. And that's not wrong in and of itself, but believers must come to that place of saying, you know, we share a, a, the same spirit that all suffering saints uh, before us have experienced, and all who come after us will, will also experience. And so we, because we believe, we also speak. We have shared with you a little bit of, about our journey with Kristen's cancer. Uh, we did get some difficult news while we were away that there's another spot an area of concern, as they call it, that kind of sanitizes it, right? There's an important PET scan a week from tomorrow. And they're going to take a really expensive picture of her from head to toe. Because we want to know, okay, if it's, if it's in her, where is it? And the concern is that it actually has um, appeared in the sternum, in the bone. That's not good. So we continue to pray and trust the Lord in all of this. But I'm going to tell you, when we got the call, talk to the doctor, I was ticked. Pastors are supposed to be full of faith, right? Well, I was full of anger at that moment because I felt like, okay, Lord, we, we've trusted you. We've prayed for healing. You haven't, like, wiped this stuff out yet. We're on, this, we're on this road of treatment that's got enough, you know, bumps and discomfort with us. But here, I felt like we were just minding our own business, so to speak, moving through an intersection, and we got T-boned. And so now the course we're not on that road anymore now we're on this course and you know we got a flat tire and a bashed in door and I can hardly see out of this windshield in front of me now and I'm like god what are you doing he's actually doing the very thing he's saying in second Corinthians 4 he's doing and he sweetly confirmed that Kristen's second brother Greg texted her last week and we were able to spend just a little bit of time with Greg and his wife and one of their grandkids. He texted Kristen and said, I was telling your story today at work and was able to witness to them with it. I told them how a godly woman can handle something like cancer and why. I'm gonna tell you right now, neither Kristen nor I feel like we're very godly at some of these moments. But when Kristen read that text to me, I'm like, there it is. How kind is God to shine the light of Jesus through the cracks of the jar?" Even when all you can be aware of is my jar is falling apart, God is redeeming using our suffering in ways we cannot see. We're not going to stop praying for her healing, of course, but we're also going to be careful to pray, Lord, let the treasure that is Jesus, let the light that is Jesus be revealed. Believers use their suffering as a platform to speak. And believers know that God uses the proclamation of this faith to extend his grace. Look at verse 15. Paul says, it's all for your sake. Really? Yeah, the suffering is all for your sake, Corinthians. Some of them are knuckleheads. Like, if you read, the, if you read 1 Corinthians and then 2 Corinthians, man, he is dealing with a boatload of sin that these people won't repent of. There's all kinds of pride and arrogance. And, you know, I think most of us would say, we are done with these people. Well, Paul is not, and he's actually acknowledging that his suffering has, is a significant tool in God's hand to to bring these people to a place of newfound faith and a powerful experience of grace. Look at the text. It's all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Well, the question is, who is giving the thanks? Well, in short, it's the people who didn't have faith in Jesus Christ prior to watching a bunch of his followers suffer and deal with that suffering in a totally different way where they're people of faith, they're people of hope, even to the point that they're dying. And so the people who watch you and me persevere through our suffering with God's surpassing power being revealed and the people who are listening as we proclaim our faith in God's power to raise us from the dead and, and, and who themselves are brought to that place where they begin to believe, they're the ones who give thanks to God for the grace that they're receiving. And isn't that what we're on planet Earth for to begin with? Because Jesus is Lord and he's worthy of our faith. He's worthy of our service. He's worthy of everything. Now quickly, this is going way too long. Look at verse 16. So we do not lose heart because God is redeeming our suffering. He's using it all for for greater purposes than we can ever imagine. There's powerful encouragement to persevere here, and we persevere in faith. Paul says we do not lose heart. That is, we, we may be discouraged, but we don't give up. And look at this next phrase, though our outer self is wasting away. That's the grim reality. You can't stop it. But there's a difference between uh, a follower of Jesus dealing with that declining health and strength and all of that, and someone who actually has no relationship with God. You've encountered that, I'm sure, with family or friends. You see it in the headlines every day. There's like this global panic in the hearts of so many people uh, about the, the world itself coming to an end, and our lives you know, will never be the same, and the human race is going to be wiped out within years, and, and earth is just going to you know, reach a point of boiling where you know, we're kind of cooked off the face of the earth. Well, I understand why there's so much fear. Here's the difference for the follower of Jesus, though. He actually assures you that though there is a a process of breaking down and wearing out that is underway, he's actually going to uphold the world by his powerful word until the end. I think it's funny that God has sent, the total, as of yesterday at Alta, was 749 inches of snow. The Great Salt Lake has risen two feet you know, since it's its lowest point. And you know how this is going to be spun? It's just more evidence of climate change and we're all going to die. Can't win for losing. One of the coldest, wettest winters on record in Salt Lake. It's evidence of climate change. If you people would stop idling your cars in the driveway before you go to work in the morning, we might live a few more years. Now, I'm all for the stewardship of the earth. I've talked about this before. I consider myself to be a Christian tree hugger not like a non-Christian tree hugger who thinks like the tree has as much valuable as the human being, but I'm sad that I think the pine tree in my front yard has been infested you know, with these beetles and is dying. Like I'm really sad about that, but you know, it doesn't alter the course of my life. So while we acknowledge that there is this process of breaking down and wearing out, we also know that's not the end. There is gonna be a day where the Lord speaks the word and heaven and earth will, you know, be folded up and cast away and a new heavens and a new earth will be created. And Paul even alludes to that in the next phrase when he says, our, though the outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, renovated, restored, Sin is what destroyed the inner you, but now God's at work in a, in a powerful way. We, you know, restoration shows are the rage. And I, I'm going to admit, I love watching these shows myself. And, you know, whether it be Hometown or Farmhouse Fixer or the Property Brothers, which is now an older show, or the mother of them all, Fixer Upper, Actually, this old house was going way before all that, right? But, I mean, there's something in us that loves to see things that once had value being restored or even being improved. And some of you are like, I don't watch those shows. Well, you know, you've probably watched shows like Iron Resurrection or Phantom Works or the classic car show Overhaulin'. Man, it's, it's an awesome thing when people who have great vision and creativity and skills can take things that are broken down and bring them back to a condition where they're not only useful, but actually more valuable than ever. Well, that's what the Lord is actually doing with you and me. So the outer you, mm, it's pretty much downhill until the end. The inner you, it's being restored. And then there's going to come a day where the outer you is also remade so it matches the perfect inner you that God has been, uh, has been restoring through these years. And that's what God the Father is doing through God the Son by the power of God the Spirit in the inner self. Your suffering is no hindrance to that process of renewal. It may feel like it but you are not actually in a state of spiritual decline, even though you may be physically suffering or emotionally suffering or, or even a kind of spiritual suffering that you're in right now. It's part of the process that God is using to form Christ in you and to make you like Him. So we persevere in faith because of these grand truths and promises. And then lastly, look at verse 17, this light momentary affliction. Now, we'll pause right there, though, God is not minimizing your suffering, dear friend. This is not God's divine way of saying, suck it up, buttercup. <laughs> no, he's actually drawing a comparison, isn't he? Let's read the whole verse. This light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The affliction is bad. It, it often hurts more than words could describe it often costs you more than you ever imagined. It depletes you in, in ways that defy understanding, humanly speaking. But the Lord almost hangs that like a really dark and bleak backdrop. And it is the present reality, but it's against that darkness that he hangs the hope of an eternal weight of glory. And in comparison, what you and I experience right now is light. When it's put in the scales next to the glory that's coming, it's light in its weight. It's, it is heavy now, but it's light. Thank, thank God there is an expiration date on our suffering, but there's no expiration date on glory that's coming. He says it's eternal. And glory itself is a word that in many places has to do with the weight of something, and while at this moment we feel like our sufferings are sovereign, some of you feel like death and disease have all the control at this moment. They dictate the course of life and have the final word. It feels like the pressures in your marriage and family, your job loss or that failing business venture define your life. It feels like you will never sleep again or that you will never find freedom from anxiety and fear, but that's not true. It will all expire one day. And God is actually using all of that to prepare something for us. And, and he says, as I've described, it's an eternal weight of glory. Let's think about glory in conclusion here. Glory has to do with honor, praise, even applause. Glory is a term that's used of kings in their splendor and majesty. It's used of clothing that is spectacular beyond words. It's used of vast sums of wealth and treasure whose value is beyond appraisal. It's used of light that is so spectacular that it blinds and amazes, and it's used of Jesus himself who is the radiant glory of the invisible God. But what Paul is speaking of here and what will, what will come to pass one day is that the God of glory himself will honor you. Like, it's not just you're going to see glory, but that there will be glory for you, dear friend, because you have suffered in this life. Honor, and could I even put it this way, applause from the Lord of glory himself, because in faith and in sweet, humble hope and trust, you lived a life that said, I'm more than the sum total of my clay atoms. I'm so fragile and vulnerable and I'm more than the suffering that seemed like it defined all that I was in those few brief years. There was a treasure deposited in me and that treasure is Jesus and somehow God took the brokenness of my life and let the light of Christ shine through it and brought me to this place where now I see Him in His glory and somehow it staggers the mind, it boggles the imagination, God Himself gives glory to you what glory awaits there's a weight of rest coming that will swallow up the pain of your restlessness now there's a weight of peace coming that will make your fears and anxieties right now seem like dust in the balance and there's a weight of glory coming So what do we do? Well, verse 18 tells us, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. That's Abraham, right? Matt touched on this last week. The people of faith have always been looking for things that these eyes can't see. There's a God in heaven that we have not seen that is real. There's a city whose builder and maker is God that we've not seen with these eyes, but we're living for him and we're living for it. Your suffering doesn't have the last word because your suffering is not sovereign. Jesus is Lord.